Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Jonathan McAvoy, currently an undergrad student of economics at the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. We talk about Jonathan's thought process in understanding economic theory and applying it to the real world, about finding a balance between globalisation and national autonomy, why Ireland should aspire to CERN status and how the role of economics in science and technology could benefit one another. Jonathan also talks about the importance of music and how timeless songs by the likes of Springsteen, Bob Dylan and Tupac capture the economic and social essence of the time. Jonathan also talks about his vision regarding the future of economics and the future of technology. You can check out the show notes page with all the links, books and resources mentioned by Jonathan at economicrockstar.com forward slash Jonathan McAvoy. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. This globalization is happening at the moment. I'm not against it at all. I think it's great because the more output we have, the more wealth we're actually giving as well. But it's those people that are being left behind. And that's kind of like the, the social justice warrior inside of me coming out here. But we can't leave certain aspects of people behind. The way that you can portray your inner emotion then in the, in the least destructive way, but the most creative way. Perhaps you can use that then to kind of push for a policy to ensure that it doesn't happen again, to make sure that if it does happen again, it's going to be weathered. It's going to have a buffer there. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Jonathan McAvoy join me today. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me. Jonathan McAvoy is currently an undergrad student of economics at Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. He was recently recognized for being in the top 5% of the business school at WIT, earning the honor of being on the Dean's List for Academic Achievement. Jonathan has a unique understanding of the world around us and, together with his love of economics, has a unique perspective on the economics discipline. Jonathan's desire to discover and explore the multitude of economic thinking, from Keynesianism to Marxism, has resulted in him creating a blog called Economics Thoughts of a Student, which can be found at Jonathan McAvoy. 888.blogspot.com. His recent career has prepared him well to be a great public speaker and communicator. Jonathan is also an athlete and a top soccer player, having spent time with English Premier League clubs Manchester City and Tottenham Hotspur. His interests also include health, human rights, politics, civil rights, education, poverty alleviation and science and technology. Jonathan, before we get on to your blog and your current writing and your current interest that you have in economics, I would love to find out firstly as to why you studied economics. I know a little bit of background in terms of what you had done before that, and I'd love to know what you did and why you transitioned and doing currently to you know studying economics. Yeah, sure thing, no problem. Well, uh, I finished secondary school at the age of 17 from De La Salle College here in Waterford. And I moved straight into WIT doing applied biology. Now, I absolutely love science, love technology. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. But I've always had a kind of inclination towards, so I'd say, the business side of things. So uh, I spent two years doing the applied biology and learned quite a bit. But I just realized that I couldn't see myself in that field 
to actually be doing that for the rest of my life. So basically, I took a year out and went working in a Waterford Crystal. Some of the viewers may know of it. I worked as a tour guide, and that's where I really kind of honed my public speaking skills to a degree. You know, it was just a bit of fun. I really enjoyed it. But uh, after that year out, I just kind of realized that I need to further my education. And how I was going to do that was because I really like business, I went in and I chose a business degree. Now, I've done the three-year course starting out, and I spent the first two years in there. After that, I kind of realized through the different modules that we were doing that I wanted to push into economics because I just I just found that economics itself, it kind of worked towards my observation of the world around me, and it just clicked with me. So third year then, moved from the uh, three-year course and the four-year course, and went straight into the third year of the four-year. Then I pretty much went on work placement, and here we are now in fourth year last year. Really, it's just absolutely fantastic, just learning all different types of discipline from economic policy to financial economics to capital markets. It's just fantastic to kind of get that, all those different types of viewpoints use them to actually observe what's happening around and then kind of try to make sense of the world around me. So uh, that's really how I got into economics and why I love economics, to be honest. And this whole idea of, you know, you observing the world around you in terms of economics and perhaps in terms of uh, science and technology, because that was your initial love as well. I'm just wondering, given the climate that we're in at the moment, both political and economic, has that given you a unique perspective on things that maybe another generation would not have? Because when others studied economics, say a decade or two decades ago, there was different events going on. And we may not have that type of thinking that you or others that are doing economics right now are observing. Sometimes I know it's a kind of a cliche sentence that hear people say, but history seems to repeat itself. Mm. And looking at it now, uh, we'll take, say, current time, 2016, it's just been a mad year what's happening, especially in terms of, say, like globalization, where we have people being angry with what's after happening, say, in England and the Brexit situation, then people's anger in America and them voting in Donald Trump on the rhetoric that he was you know, shouting about. Now, I understand where these people are coming from. Because to me, I feel that people are undereducated to a point on globalization. And they're angry because this whole globalized situation that's happening at the moment is taking people's jobs, their security. And you can see a lot in, say, young men and, say, pushing a little bit older, people who have been so used to a job and having it taken away from them. They were the breadwinners. They were bringing the money into the household. They are actually providing a life for themselves. But... If we look then, say, at the kind of comparative advantage, like the Ricardian comparative advantage, nations themselves are going to move towards the more effective and efficient way of producing goods and services and also the output for our nation itself. So that kind of move towards a less efficient way of producing goods into a more efficient way of producing goods is going to have some collateral damage. So people are going to lose their jobs to cheaper you know, labor you know, uh, say, an improvements in technology, more so moving from human labor into, you know, machines and uh, robotic labor, that sort of thing. You can see this sort of stuff happening after World War One, 
pushing then into World War Two and you know the consequences of what happened to Germany after World War One, them getting the blame and them being given heaps of these uh, loans at incredibly high interest rates that they couldn't repay back, it just made the German people a little bit well, and I'm gonna say a little bit more angry because that'd be an understatement for like you know people like Adolf Hitler. But it's history repeating itself. So what I've been thinking a lot about recently is how to kind of buffer that, how to weather that and kind of balance out, say, national autonomy with a kind of globalized economy. And to be honest, I have some ideas, but it will will need like a, a group consensus, a group think tank to get together to actually really discuss these various ideas, have other people's viewpoints come in as well to it. Because if we don't get a general discussion going on about what's going on here, we're just doomed to repeat ourselves over and over again. Well, what's going to happen in the future? I, I, I really don't know. It's an interesting it's, question because you, yeah. you actually wrote a post on that on your website. And this is only recent. I think you only released it early this week. It's called Finding the Balance Between Globalization and National Autonomy. And mm-hmm. it's it's such a great heading because it seems so, in a way, somewhat contradictory to you know, what globalization is and having your national autonomy. But it's so significant to have that autonomy as well. And I don't know, um, is this where, say, for example, what's happening with the elections politics in terms of what Donald Trump wants to do is bring back the jobs to the US, probably cut the tax rates down to very low competitive levels to entice these firms to come back here. But then, Again, what's the outcome there? You know, you're going against uh, trade, trade agreements, maybe globalization, which expands, as you mentioned in another post, your production possibility frontier and makes everyone better off. Mm-hmm. And you, you are right by saying we probably need a general consensus on this and a discussion. But your thoughts were very much, I suppose, for me when I read them, opened my eyes in terms of how this is a reality and we need to do something about it because there are concerns and there possibly will be concerns for maybe future volatility in that. Yeah, like we do need to start kind of talking about this and not just economists themselves, but people in the broader spectrum of everything. Scientists, you know, people who are in education, people who are in the labor force. This globalization is happening at the moment. I'm not against it at all. I think it's great because the more output we have, the more wealth we're actually giving as well. But it's those people that are being left behind. And that's kind of like the, say, the, the social justice warrior inside of me coming out here. We can't leave certain aspects of people behind because you can see in, say, like science fiction movies, take like Blade Runner, for example. You have like a corporate culture coming in. They are pretty much expanding an income variance between, say, the upper class, the, the high income earners and the low income earners. And just kind of pushing that divide so that kind of middle class isn't really going to be there possibly in the future. You're going to have you know, the upper middle class being pushed into, say, the more wealthier side of things, the lower middle class being pushed into the poorer side of things. So what I personally I think needs to happen, I can't speak for everyone, I can only speak really for myself, is that between globalization and national autonomy, some sort of balance will need to be found there because we're Irish, we're living in Ireland, but the Irish people, the Irish government, Ireland itself, it relies very, very heavily on foreign firms and uh, foreign direct investment. So say, for example, if Donald Trump 
came along. Well, he's, he has come along. He's here now for at least four years. But he's come along now. He's going to say, I'm going to bring my jobs back. I'm going to make, you know, get people back to work. I'm going to put embargoes and put tariffs on, say, Chinese steel. I'm going to get, you know, that kind of rust belt area back work and if, with, with the kind of steel industry itself. It's hard for those people not to be seduced by that because they're given hope. They're given an opportunity that they could possibly capitalize on themselves. But here for us in Ireland, you take that uh, foreign direct investment out, those foreign firms out, and because it's cheaper to operate in their home country, there's going to be a lot of people here in Ireland, very highly educated people, people that are doing a lot for the country, a lot for the economy, that are going to be thrown out the door. Those people then will have to try to find new jobs. They're going to start taking in social welfare themselves, kind of, you know, pushing their fall for the time being so they can go out and try to find other jobs. More than likely, they're going to up sticks, head off again. You know, it's, it's been happening here the last couple of years. People going to America, to Australia, to New Zealand to find work over to England. See it happen with our nurses here. It's a very, very tricky situation. But if we had some sort of foundation here to actually get small to medium enterprises to work here, to expand, to have that safety net. So that people, if they do fall out of, say, like multinational corporations, say like a Google, for example, they have probably something to fall back on here and they won't be upping and leaving the country because we do have a lot to give to people. I just want to see that Ireland's potential is going to be diminished because of geopolitical anguish at the moment. We had a conversation recently. I, I suppose I'll put it out there to people who are listening right now. I lecture you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, at the moment, I, I lecture you on a module called Financial Economics. And within that module, we discuss some thinking, such as Keynes's Animal Spirits. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's kind of touching on what you're talking about here. Keynes has identified that there's human action and there's human desire in the economy that could trigger or could influence business cycle fluctuations. And the thinking all along pretty much has been that economic variables such as interest rates or inflation can be controlled in order to try and adjust for those type of fluctuations. Whereas government policy should be set up not only through maybe, say, with economists to support it, but other people like psychologists and maybe have a a think tank team to support government to introduce policies that would alleviate that type of destruction, household destruction at a very much a micro level. And how we manage that, how we re-educate people to get people back to employment if an event like that, like what you're talking about, could happen. And there's always that possibility that it can happen. And it, it kind of ties into another blog post that you have discussed. And that's the role of economics and science and technology and how they benefit one another. And you're more talking about here CERN, C-E-R-N. And because we are not much of a player when it comes to CERN, do we, as a small country, we, we do pu- uh, punch above our weight. But when it comes to things like this, when it comes to policy or when it comes to intergovernmental projects, do we not have much of a, a role to play or am I missing something? And is this just an example of what we were kind of talking about in terms of our over-reliance on foreign direct investment, our over-reliance on what other governments do that we could end up being badly affected by? Yeah, see, with, with Ireland's status with say CERN, we have some scientific contact with them. Now, Ireland itself, we do a lot, say, in pharmaceuticals, tech, you know, computers. We are pretty, as you said, that we do punch above our weight. Now, if you have something like CERN, one of the biggest scientific experiments ever, 
with the amount of you know, funding that can pull in. And we're just sitting here, a, a great country who's, who's actually able to, say, contribute massively to it. One of the lecturers in WT, Cormac O'Rafferty, in physics, perfect example, an incredibly intelligent man who has done work with uh, Stephen Hawking. He'll have some contact with CERN, but he won't actually be able to really get his fingers in there and you know, mush around and really understand what's going on. But th- th- he still has that contact there. Now, to me, that's a travesty for Ireland because like, we, we do work with the ESA, the European Space Agency. We've you know, done bits and pieces, say, for like uh, rockets going up. We've done some stuff for the Philae lander that went around close to Pluto and taking photos for it. Uh, some of the stuff, like 70 companies here in Ireland actually do work for the ESA. But if we can open that up to, say, CERN status, we're opening up a load of opportunities, a load of avenues, especially in, like, say, the physics side of things. We're kind of lacking in that department. And the more investment and funding you can put into, say, like the science and technology side of things. Now, I might be biased here because I, 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 I love the sciences and technology side of things. But the more investment you can put into that, the more innovation you're going to be able to get. And the more innovation you have to get the more ideas, the more life-changing opportunities you're going to bring, not only to the country, but around the world as well. I'm actually sort of working on a piece at the moment, Future Economics and Future Tech, and just kind of thinking 50, 100 years down the road, with what, with like with the kind of uh, intertwinedness of, say, economics with science and technology, and where we're going to be, say, in 50 or 100 years' time. So, for example, you could be looking at, say, like an agricultural revolution, where you're going to have places like, say, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Paris, who have these big, massive skyscrapers. But those skyscrapers can be used, say, for kind of vertical farming, where you can be able to grow crops from, like, maize, corn, potatoes. You'd be able to grow different types of fruit, different types of veg. And they could use like different hydro- hydroponic and aeroponic methods to actually grow these things without actually using, a, say, a soil medium. So you have all these various ways that can actually be put into, say, an industrial use, have big, say, farm towers in the middle of these cities growing all these various different types of uh, food sources. They'd be you know, pretty much very, very fresh. If you're, say, like a business or someone going into that, say, kind of industry then, you're going to be looking at, oh, well, I won't actually need a lot of money put aside for distribution because if I have, say, have a farm tower in New York, a farm tower in Paris, in Berlin, in L.A., all I need to do is just harvest it. I can bring it downstairs. You know, I can then just might have, say, like a, an electric vehicle of some sorts going around the city, dropping all these things off. And... It's it's there, you know, you won't be spending a lot of money, say, on distribution or the money on, say, like product lifespan. No, I could be wrong because I don't work in that kind of industry. But that's that's what's hitting me. The other things then you'd be talking about will be, you know, we're going to kind of go a bit space mining here. That's fine, because I spoke to a professor, Robin Hansen, and he was talking about the age of M or brain emulations. And he has a fantastic views and what he thinks the future was going to be and we're going to have rapid accelerations in gdp for a certain time period based on how we can use our brains and download our brains onto computers and have workers for us our own brains to work for us while we physically can enjoy more increased leisure time yeah so you you work away with your thoughts because (laughs) you know i'd love to hear them jonathan 
Yeah, cool. No, like it's just I'm just probably just going off rambling now for like a couple of minutes, but it excites me to see where everything could possibly be going, and the science itself can only achieve that kind of push forward with the only economic incentives to actually dr- be, get behind it and actually drive it. And it's kind of a symbiotic relationship between economics and, say, science and technology as well, because the more science technology you kind of invest in, the more innovation you can get in, say, computers. The more innovation you can get in computers, the more you're going to see uh, more studies, more research being put into, say, like cognitive thoughts and cognitive processes, cognitive data analysis. And that itself then can be brought back around and actually be used, say, in the economic directives and policy making to actually go, okay, this is what people are thinking. This is what we think is going to happen. Perhaps if we go down this route, then we can start pushing into something a little bit more, a little bit more deeper, a little bit more it's sci-fi, you know, it's, it's. You're quite a visionary, Jonathan. And I think we need that type of vision. We need that type of thinking. Entrepreneurs do it. You name one entrepreneur who has a vision and has made it happen because I don't want to say it. I'm just going to say Elon Musk straight away. Yes, that's who I was Elon thinking, Musk, you know? like what, what a guy. He's just after, you know, the, the whole Tesla thing he's doing at the moment, SpaceX, Solar City. It's just, it's absolutely fantastic. And he has this vision of, oh, I want to put people on Mars. Like that kind of innovation is just, it's, it's absolutely incredible. So if you can imagine then if we have people on Mars, yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely crazy, but it's so, it's, it's like the future is now sort of thing. And I, it just, it excites me so, so much. Cause if you can say get people on Mars, Perhaps we could then move, say, people moving on to Venus or, or wherever it is. You could then start talking about terraforming and the kind of output that will happen for the world here. And if you're looking at, say, like a, a global PPF, you're going to start pushing that global PPF so far that you're going to probably start talking not globalization, but planetization. I never heard of that. That's fantastic. A planetary and, PPF as well. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's really the limitations what you can only think of. You kind of just be a little bit imaginative and just kind of go a bit mad with it sometimes. Like if if you have an idea, probably probably a tip for writing or whatever here, but you just write it out. You just keep going and you keep going. It don't matter about the editing. It don't matter about what you're thinking. If you just keep writing it down, you know, you never know where your thoughts are going to bring you. And that kind of what I just said there, going from globalization to planetization, I I just wrote that down. I say about two, three days ago, because it's just, it's just something that hit me. And I was like, it's just, it's mad. But then again, if you're thinking of, say, going from globalization into a planetization, you're going to have to start thinking then of a balance between, say, like a country's national autonomy, world globalization, and then a balance between the world's globalization and country's national autonomy with interplanetization. It's this kind of balance that will need to be struck otherwise then if if you're kind of blowing this up to a macro macro view what's happening at the moment like if you look at the moment then if you say things are moving out to say like mars to be produced because it's cheaper out there you're going to have people here on earth going wait a second what's going on and it's just a bigger version of what's after happening say like in america and and england at the moment with our kind of leaving the european union and voting in donald trump it's just just a bigger bigger way of thinking of it are you an optimist, Jonathan? Ah, oh, sure, I have to be. <laughs> I have to be. Uh, I'm very, very cynical most of the time, but I do like to be optimistic in where things are going. 
I can only imagine how something like this could throw the economics discipline way off. Pretty much what we're doing right now is Samuelsonian economics, the, the principles of economics textbooks that we have. And there are limitations with the teaching of economics today. You have your principles or your, your laws of supply and demand and how we have introduced mathematics into the discipline and we have a theorem and then trying to establish proofs for that theorem. And then we repeat the same for another type of theorem and we have a proof, but largely they do not reflect what is actually going on. And there are a number of economists out there that are challenging this. And one of them I'll be interviewing shortly in another episode soon after you, Jonathan, is Professor Deirdre McCloskey, who, along with two others, have written a book called, I think it's got The Economics Conversation. And she wants and has introduced this as a as an undergraduate text that would be different to the ones that we're familiar with, more so uh, print, uh, Econ 101 and 102. And she wants to have that discussion, that lecturer-student discussion to introduce all the types of economic thinking, including Marxists, Keynes, Smith, and have that debate, that rhetoric that we need in order to try to understand the economy around us and to accept that people have different views and different viewpoints because they may be upper class, lower class, they may be of different gender, different race, and everyone has, I'm sure, a different viewpoint on how certain aspects of the economy affects them personally. Now, that sounds right up my alley. I, I, I like the sound of that. I really, really do. Because people think, say, there's a duality to humankind, I say. It's very, very black. It's very, very white. It's, if you're either on this side of the fence or you're on that side of the fence. If you're on the fence... You're an idiot, pretty much. You know, you have to pick a side and whatever side you're on, you want to destroy the other side because your side is right. It's just kind of the way, say, human thought is. But obviously we've all kind of said, oh, every, we try to make everything black and white because it's easier to categorize that way. But what if it's not, you know, a duality? What if there's like a spectral, a, a kind of a spectral thought pattern? Now you hit upon, say, Marxism there and, and Adam Smith like Adam Smith, to me, say like Wealth of Nations, I'd say that'd be more stuff that's kind of lean more so kind of free market. And that, therefore, that more sort of kind of free market side of things is more so, say, uh, pure capitalism. Whereas then you take, say, uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto. Obviously, they're going to be on the other side of the spectrum where it's very, very uh, government orientated and everything is, say, uh, we'll say equal. So. It's not just, you know, this side or that side. There's, there's gray areas in between and different shades of gray that you can go from one side to the other. And I thought about this quite a bit and I've done a piece called Spectrum of Capitalism. And I kind of thought about, say, communism and capitalism and, you know, them coming together in kind of a spectral sort of way. And that kind of pure capitalist thought pattern be very, very industrial and people, they, they don't think of, say, like the negative or positive externalities of them wanting to make that profit and that profit being, you know, the be all and end all. Then you have, say, the kind of more left leaning people, the kind of Marxists and the, the sort of communist kind of thinkers where, yes, they do look for a kind of social equality. But that social equality is going to come at the cost of, uh, you know, people being begin to get very, very lazy and not actually wanting to work because everything is given to them. And 
they do have a job and everyone has a job. They're only earning this certain amount. They can only, you know, they get the one car, they have the one house. Everything is the exact same. There's no, say, kind of goal or aspiration to climb that ladder to kind of make yourself uh, more better off and increase your own personal welfare. Because it's, it's, there's just no incentive to do it. And you see that with the old USSR. And that's pretty much how it all collapsed in itself. And it disincentivizes any person who is any way entrepreneurial as well. Yeah, like you're not, you're not going to get innovation from it at all, at all. Whereas, say, then if, you, if you're purely industrialist and purely capitalist, yeah, there's going to be a, a lot of innovation going on, but there's going to be a lot of people left behind and those people are going to lose out in their welfare. So where is that balance? I think I, think, I think I keep just talking about this balance thing over and over again, like balance between globalization, national autonomy, and this balance now between, say, capitalism and communism. But it's, it's that finding that balance so that you can have the most people affected in the most positive way. It's tricky to do. It's very, very tricky to do. And that kind of duality mindset, it's, it's not, it's not kind of being broken down, but it's more so being, say, reinforced with various other um, externalities that are around us every day. So, for example, your political system. Now, we're lucky here, say, in uh, Europe, where it's, it's not just a in America, where it's Republican, Democrat, and a very small minority of third party, where it's just totally forgotten about. But here in Europe, we have a variety of different people to choose from, and variety, you know, it is the spice of life, and especially for, for, for in, in the kind of political scene, because you can say, okay, mm. we've tried it this way, we don't like it, let's go this way. Then after that, you know, we've, you've messed up as well, so those two people messed up, let's go this way then. So it does give you that kind of, that choice and that option, and option is it is it is pretty good so it kind of gives a little bit of a kind of a spectral thought process to it but everything is kind of geared towards duality black or white even say with like everyday advertising buy this you're going to be like much better off or don't buy this and you'll be you know not as well off that's the way i i would be thinking with certain aspects of this kind of spectral thought I don't know, maybe there's something there. I'd, I'd like to talk to more people about it, kind of get their viewpoints on it as well. I'd love to know, based on that type of thinking that you have in terms of the duality and creating the balance between the different types of understanding in economics or the, the policies that we have at national or global level, do you think there could be ways in which, and I'm sure some universities out there are actually introducing this in, in their lectures as well and some of the economics or finance modules that they deliver, but from your own personal experience, is there any way or criticism that you might have? You mightn't know, but if there's any criticisms you might have regarding what's lacking in terms of the education that you or other people that you know may have regarding our discipline of economics. The economic discipline, it's, it's, it, it is nice and broad and it can be applied to many, many sort of different, uh, different subjects and, it is observational, you know, and there is a lot of it's, it's not just hard figures like, say, in maths, and it's not pure uh, psychology. It's got kind of meshing together of, say, like maths, but also the irrationality of psychology and the human psyche. So that coming together, it's kind of it's like a fire. It's, it's going to be a fireworks display because you, you won't be able to kind of ground it and really understand it if you just say think of it in one way or the other to me anyway. How I, I say sort of go about kind of economic discipline as a whole, I, I think that we're kind of at the moment 
say, where the sciences were back in the 1980s, where if you say you look through different types of films, they're all nerds or dorks or whatever they want to call them. And I think that's where economics is at the moment. But as of now, say, if you look at the physics side of things or the biology or, or the chemistry side of things, it's all getting very, very mainstream and it's very, very popular at the moment. Say, like you've shows like the Big Bang Theory or Neil deGrasse Tyson doing, say, like Cosmos and people tuning in because, oh, these people are understanding how the world around me works. I want to know about this. So I think I think the economics, it needs to kind of be a little bit more mainstream to allow more people to kind of understand it and digest it and make economics, for want of a better word, sexy. That That's really it. And to be able to do that, we'll be on, we will be on the right track. But economics has been tied so much with, say, like politics. And people, even though they have their own viewpoints on politics, politics is, to the majority of people, very, very boring. And it kind of they, they tune out after, say, five or ten minutes of certain political agendas are, are listening. And there's not a lot of people as well getting involved, say, locally or nationally in the political scene. And that, that's... That's because, you know, it doesn't interest them really to to an extent. Yeah, they'll have a viewpoint, but they won't actually get down dirty and understand how the political system works. And I think because economics has been tied to that for so long and pretty much always has been, it kind of rubs off on economics that way, being a little bit boring. And I don't think that's true at all because economics is it's like the physics of business. It's understanding how everything works. It just it's to me, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. But then again, you have economics and finance being taught together. And finance, you take like the likes of, say, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, a very, very glamorous film. <laughs> it makes finance seem, you know, very sexy. So if we can get economics, yes, it's, it's to do, it, it, it has a kind of tendril there in, in, in policy and politics. But if we can kind of get it to stick to a little bit more to finance, then I think more people kind of come into it and go, ooh, this is what economists are like. This is how they party. I want to be part of that. <laughs> you know, and I want to learn more about that. So really, it's, it's kind of been able to expand uh, economics to the wider audience to kind of get a, a bit of dialogue going between them. Because if you went up to someone in the middle of the street and you said to them, oh, comparative advantage and Dave Ricardo, what you think? They're going to look at you and go, what is this madman doing? You know, so Right now, there's a show called Hamilton. And the economists love it. And so yeah. do the general public. And he's one of the signatories of the... Declaration of Independence. Yes. Yeah. It's a show that's always sold out. There's huge demand for tickets on the black market as well or other sites. And like I interviewed Greg Mankiw and people can listen to it on episode 111, just two from you, Jonathan. And one person in the audience, I also interviewed him, he paid $89 for the ticket, but Greg Mankiw paid $2,500 for the ticket to see the same show. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, everyone's talking about Hamilton and the, yeah. the economics within that. But again, at a conference, that same conference that I was at in Florida, the amount of educators there that are doing very creative and innovative things in the classroom to make an e economics interesting, but just to the student, obviously, they only have a limited audience. And it's a pity that we can't get that out there. For example, one, Brian O'Rourke, he uses superheroes and those powers that they have and talks about the, <laughs> the resources and, you know, 
applies economics, maybe comparative advantage could be used to explain those type of powers that the superheroes have. And Kim Holder, who I also interviewed, she talked about using music and movies and looking at the concepts in that. And yeah. I think this perfectly leads on to the next question that I have because I'm eager to get on. Well, not eager to get onto it, but it's some, it's one of one, the first post I read that you had written, Jonathan. And you talk about, you know, music, you know, how to write timeless songs like Springsteen and other artists to economic residents in timeless songs and creativity being born from economics. And it touches on what those educators are doing in the classroom today to get people to understand much better the whole idea of economics, whereas you came from a perspective where you understood already, I'm sure, what uh, likes of Springsteen and Bob Dylan are talking about in their lyrics and how it's timeless and it transcends time in terms of what people experienced at that time. I don't want to really go on about it because I, I want you to talk about it. You know, how can we use music to understand these economic concepts or to understand what has gone on in the past in terms of economic history? Because I think it's really a great way of capturing that essence, capturing that feeling, capturing the, that period of time that might have had economic angst or, you know, that type of yeah, yeah, like feelings. Yeah, I, I know, I know where you're coming from there, and like the educators who are using, say, like that kind of method to kind of drill home a point about certain economic thinking, it does resonate more with with people because people they they just love music. You know, everyone has their iPod, everyone has their earphones plugged in. They're all walking around just listening to their music. It don't matter if it is you know Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan, Tupac Shakur. All these people who are writing about these, who write these songs and then add music to them, but the majority of these songs, it's all coming from a place of, say, like hardship. And that hardship has been brought about from, uh, you know, economic uh, depressions or recessions or economic downturns because they've been going through to say this hardship. And then they kind of, the way to get it out, get that pain out of them is to write it down. And that's their medium. That's how they do it. And I think that's why, you know, these songs resonate with people so much. It's because everyone has been through some sort of hardship in their life. Either it be economically, either it be through romance, either whatever it is, they've been through some sort of uh, of hardship. And especially if you've lost your job and you don't know what what's going to happen, you don't know how you're going to pay your next bill, you don't know if you're going to be kicked out of your house or not. There's going to be a lot of built up emotion there. And through the arts, through culture, through the medium of music, a lot of that emotion can actually be portrayed perfectly. Because some people can't, you know, they won't be able to say, write it down. Other people then express it in very, very uh, unproductive ways, say, like turning to crime and trying to make ends meet by doing illegal activities. But then other people then are going to look at it and just go, this is where I am. This is where I'm at. I, the only way I know how to actually kind of simmer myself down and kind of ground myself to realize okay this is where i'm at and i need to be i need i need to kind of work harder i need to go, get here to kind of uh be able to you know start making money again to make sure that my family and myself are looked after they write it in they write it in lyrics and they put music to it uh, i think the, possibly the best example is going to be bruce hornsby and the range that's just the way it is and some of the lyrics inside of that 
I'm not going to sing it now, but <laughs> some lyrics inside of it, it just talks about it. You know, it's talking about like, a, you know, someone begging on the street for change, some guy just walking by and saying, I'll oh, get a job, you lazy bum or whatever. It just goes to show that kind of hardship that people do go through. And as well, that kind of hardship, say like that person who's on the street looking for a couple of euros or a couple of dollars to kind of buy themselves a sandwich. And then that guy in the suit who just walks on by and says, I get a job, you lazy bum. It just kind of shows, especially during the time period that those songs were written, it's like does that time period and say the like last 40, 50 years, that's when globalizations really start to kick off and kind of cause that little bit of divide. But that's my thinking of it anyway. But music itself is it just seems to be a perfect way for people to express their emotions. And people other people who can't do that need these creative individuals to write that music and so that they can relate to it and yeah. they need yeah. that music in order to able to understand themselves and know that there's other people out there like that. Like, for example, there's some of the music that you mentioned or some of the issues mm -hmm. that you mentioned would be like drug use and gangs and crime and racism and segregation. And these are all topics that we see in public debate on the streets. We see it affects the economic welfare of people, affects the economy. And if creative people like Bob Dylan or Tupac are writing music to highlight these difficulties and the plight of people in society, well, then shouldn't we be able to introduce that type of thing in economics and also push government to do something much more uh, to alleviate those problems and to going back perhaps to what we actually mentioned earlier on and what Keynes has written about in George Akerlof and Bob Schiller on the animal spirits, the human action. That that's one of the most significant aspects that could affect business cycle fluctuations, depressions, recessions, booms, confidence, lack of confidence, etc. Doesn't matter who you are. You could be as stoic as you want. You could be as emotional as you want. You, you are going to be subject to that human self, that human condition, that human emotion. It's, it's going to hit you at some stage because you, you are bound to get overwhelmed. And either if it's true, being overwhelmed to a, an economic purpose or an economic outcome, or, you know, if your heart was broken, you know, it's sort of, say, like, economics of romance, we'll say. The way that you can portray your inner emotion, then, in the, in the least destructive way, but the most creative way, perhaps you can use that, then, to kind of push for, a, say, like, a, a policy to kind of, to kind of ensure that it doesn't happen again, to make sure that if it does happen again, it's going to be weathered. It's going to have a buffer there. And I, a champion of that is, is Tupac with the, with the black community in America during the, during the 80s and 90s. He, he wrote songs. He, had, he, he was thought of as, a, as pretty much, I say, a god. And he spoke through his music and uh, say it's like certain interviews. He spoke a lot of truth about how people were being left behind, especially, say, that, that kind of community. They were forced into ghettos. They weren't given opportunities, which I think is just totally wrong because you need to have opportunities there, which brings it around to, say, government policy, as in, should we begin to, say, like, offer more opportunities to people or should we take more of, say, like, uh, people's outcomes? Say, like, if, if someone was 200, making 200 grand a year, Someone's making 200 grand a year compared to someone who's making 20 grand a year. Do we take more of that person who is perceived to have worked a hell of a lot harder, a hell of a lot longer, 
and reaping the rewards off it and take not as much off of, say, someone who earned 20 grand a year who's, say, just starting out. And, he, you know, kind of dis- disincentivize someone who is making a lot of money to kind of say, I, there's no point in doing this if I'm going to be taxed to the hills. Let me just take a step back. Or should we use what we have at the moment, continue on a path that we're doing, that, that we're going and move in, say, to incentivizing more opportunities driven economy? Should we get people not start taking a lot from everybody, but using what we are taking, say, through tax revenues and other sort of streams of income, say, to government and putting that towards opportunity development for certain people? And I suppose that's what you're talking about earlier on with regard to trying to get that balance. You know, you don't want to disincentivize people, but you want to encourage other people and give them the opportunity that they may not have in the current social or economic bracket that they may be in today. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, for example, like I'm just going to round back to the globalization thing again. I know I keep harping on about it, but it's it's to me it's very, very prevalent at this moment in time, especially what's happening all, all around the world. But if you take, say... um. Uh, say, say someone say someone loses their job to globalization because it's easier to produce somewhere else, more efficient, more effective. It's 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 cheaper uh, because labor costs are cheaper, say in, in a different country, and you know labor costs are the biggest overhead for a business. Perhaps if that person gets taken out of the workforce, and that's all they know, they'll need to go and have some sort of say um, opportunity fallback, so they can be taken and just go, okay, look, listen, you've lost your job at the moment. Perhaps then. This is where the economy is going here in this country. Uh, it's moving more from, say, a labor-driven economy to a more services-driven com- economy. We're going to take that person who's lost their job in labor. We're going to go, okay, we're going to educate you now into the reasons, say, why it's after happening and also where, the, where, where this country is going in the future. And retrain them, re-educate them. We can put you into, an, into a new job and, you know, you'll be able to start adding to the output of the economy, adding to the GDP and making a living for yourself and your family. So hopefully in the future, if you have children, so they can actually start off on your baseline of where you've got to and push on forward and make more money and do more for your family. So how does someone go about that? That's the thing. That's the, that, that's, that's the kind of question. And that's why I love economics, because you have one question. Perhaps you've, you know, there are many different people who are going to have different viewpoints and different answers to that. But those answers are going to spread out into even more mm. complex and deeper conversations and questions. And it's just going to keep going and going from there. And it's that kind of thought process will lead to, say, um, funding and innovation from different sectors to actually go, OK, how are we going to do this? And then just leave you at it. And they're, they're fantastic questions because you have to ask these questions in order to try and devise or construct solutions whether they're the best solutions or they're good enough to get started and i i think i'd be posing some of those questions to professor mccloskey when i actually speak to her soon because she she's all interested in that type of philosophical psychological and sociological viewpoints on the economic aspects of human behavior too Jonathan, I'd love to ask you a number of questions before we wrap up, actually. Sure. And uh, these are questions I generally ask my guests. Because of your thinking, I'd love to know if you could recommend some books to us that we may be interested in based on our conversation or based on what you actually cherish, really, in terms of who you are or what you're, how, how it's influenced your thinking. Okay, cool. Well, a couple of books. I would say Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations for that kind of capitalist side of thinking. And then also Frederick Engels and Karl Marx's 
uh, communist manifesto for the sort of communist side of thinking so we can get both perspectives and kind of mesh them together also i know loads of people read them anyway but i think they're absolutely fantastic game of thrones george r, r. martin is fantastic in his way of writing and if you are interested in writing read the books and you can kind of see how he's kind of draw, drawn those stories out into kind of it's, it's as if you're actually reading real history and also as well the fact that i really like him is the kind of economics in it and how it works it's not just you know oh start middle end something's after going wrong oh happy ending at the end that's it no it's actually about oh this is a war why is that war happening how is it affecting the people of the kingdoms you know together it's it gets it gets kind of gets you thinking and i think makes you think oh who's going to benefit most from the economics of say war and the person at the moment who's actually standing out for me is peter littlefinger baelish and how he's actually caused wars how he has used the funding himself from being master of coin into you know use into setting up different ventures so he's got money coming in he's talking to the iron bank across in essos you know kind of pulling strings and his way of doing things very say genghis khan it's very it's a merit meritocracy whereas you know whatever you put into it, you're going to get out of this sort of thing. It's it's very interesting, the Game of Thrones books, and also a great read if you want to just kind of just simmer down for a while and just really just listen. Just just, just take it easy. I would have loved to be able to talk more about the economics of the Game of Thrones because I came across somebody who wrote a couple of articles on that particular topic, and I hadn't watched the Game of Thrones or read the book. So I said, right, I'll have to do my own little bit of research before I get in touch with him. But you would have been the perfect guy, I'm sure, to be talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a chance, just just either watch it or get into it at, at some stage. If if you have time, you won't. You really won't regret. There's a reason why people love them. If you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, what era would you go back to? Who would you like to speak to? And what do you think you would have? What kind of conversation would you think you would have with them? There are. Two, maybe three people I would love to just go back in time to and have a chat with. First one is Nikola Tesla, uh, the engineer. He was a genius that I just I admire so much. And I'd just love to sit down with him and just talk to him about everything and anything. Because if his brain worked in a certain way that he was able to do magnificent things with electricity, that just blow people's minds I just, I just want to sit down with him just talk to him and just kind of get a grasp at what he's about and how his mindset is and how his viewpoints are and where where his thinking goes is he scattered is he very very refined like i i, I just love to sit down and talk to him just about anything such a, a futurist as well you know so yeah. you don't be if you are, are anyway self-critical of your own thinking and views don't be because we need people like yourself, that creativity, that vision, you know, the futurist. That means a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, another person I'd love to talk to would be uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, late 50s, early 60s. The time period, that time period, you know, Cold War era, you know, Bay of Pigs, the, the whole friction. I admire, Ken I, I just really admire Kennedy, his, you know, the whole presence he has about him and how the Kennedy family pretty much went from, you know, going across from, Oh, boat in Wexford or whatever to America and 
and making it. It would just be so nice to again just sit down with, with, with JFK himself and just go, what were you feeling during this time? What was going on during this time? Like, h- how did you manage to hold it together in such a way that it all just did not fall apart and Armageddon happened? It would, it would just, just to talk to him about that kind of, that, that, those type of topics would be absolutely fantastic. J- JFK, what a historical figure. Mm-hmm. Then the third person I'd like to talk to, he's alive today, but I'd love to go back and talk to him, would be a young Warren Buffett. Back in the 1950s, when he was starting out, that would that would be interesting again to just like just sit down, realize that this guy is going to be one of the most wealthiest men in the world. How is it? How what's his mindset? Was it where is he going with these things? Like what what was his way of thinking of doing various you know uh, you know hitting various targets, various objectives, and where he wanted to go? Those are my three guys that I'd love to go back and talk to. Yeah, they're fantastic. Imagine meeting all those at one point in time. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be just unbelievable. Jonathan, you alluded to writing tips earlier on, and I just wonder, do you have any advice to write? I don't necessarily mean academic writing, but just writing. If you have something in your mind and you're thinking about it, no matter where you are, if you're driving in a car, pull over the side of the road, Either get your phone out, take out, open a notepad, and just write down that thought. Come back to us some later stage, but just start to write. That's probably the only advice I'm going to give anyone who wants to get into writing. Just start to write, because you don't know where your fingers are going to go if you're typing or where your pen's going to go on the piece of paper if you're writing. It could go anywhere, and as you're thinking about it, as you're writing, you're going to have offshoots coming at you left, right, and center of different ways. Oh, what if it went this way? What if it went that way? Or no, this way. And just, just write it down. It doesn't matter what you write down or how much you write down, as long as you put something down, because you can always come back and expand on it. You can you know, retract from it. You can edit it. That's all to do in the future. But as long as you just write something down, you're, you're fine. They're fantastic. That's fantastic advice, Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they can find you. Oh, well, they can find me on Twitter. My handle is uh, Jonathan McAvoy. The Owen McAvoy is a zero, so look out for that. Uh, also, as well, I'm on LinkedIn if you want to add me there or just have a chat. I, I, I just love talking to people. Or, you know, it's really up to yourselves. I, I don't have a Facebook uh, or any of those other social media sites I'm just often but if you want to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter just type in my name and we can have a little bit of a chat you know maybe something can happen maybe we can start banging viewpoints off each other and maybe a little taught baby will be born yeah and that, you know go to your go to your website Jonathan McAvoy 888.blogspot.com and you know make comments and build up that relationship and develop thoughts that's it you can find all the links to Jonathan on economicrockstar.com forward slash Jonathan McAvoy Jonathan thank you so much for being so generous with your time you are an economic rockstar thanks appreciate it you too If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. 
If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.